This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm joined by Marty Kendall. He's an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. And for everyone that knows me, knows that I'm married to an engineer myself, so I can appreciate that methodology. His interest in nutrition began 18 years ago in an effort to help his wife, Monica, gain better control of her type 1 diabetes. But since then, he has worked to develop a systemized approach to nutrition tailored for a wide range of goals. He's been sharing his learnings at optimizingnutrition.com and has developed the nutrient optimizer and data-driven fasting to guide people on their journey of nutritional optimization. Welcome. I know it's very early in the morning for you in Brisbane. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Cynthia. An honor to be here. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. I love that it was, you know, your love and your compassion for your wife that you wanted to help her manage her diabetes better. How old was she when she was diagnosed with diabetes? Uh, Yeah, 10. So um, yeah, we met when we were about 25. So there was 15 years of decreasing control and health and neither of us really had any idea about diabetes when Mm -hmm. we got married. And I didn't really understand what I was getting into, but I quickly did. And uh, we found a GP who taught us a lot and um, just made it, turned it into a math game. And I got completely intrigued and thought I can solve this and have a healthy pregnancies through managing the numbers. And that's sort of how it all continued to unravel. And it's been fun and just really rewarding to see her. Like she's got a 5.1 A1C now, which is just better than most people without diabetes and um, living a happy, healthy life. Yeah, it's really rewarding. And then it just overflowed into a few other hobbies. Yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like it. And so did, did you both kind of start with a lower carb approach? What was the first kind of step that you took in helping to support her? I'm assuming it didn't start with fasting. No, no, no. I suppose understanding how blood sugars and insulin interact and how you need to quantify carbs. And then we Mm -hmm. drifted into a lower carb approach And I got into keto and paleo. Rob Wolf was a massive influence and then came across everybody else in the big keto wave and got carried on with that. And yeah, I suppose I've tried all of that to be a a biohacker nerd and just trying to break it down to what actually works and what doesn't. Because I think there's been a lot of over exuberance for different beliefs about why these things work. And like a lot of those things didn't work for me. And obviously watching Monica's blood sugar and insulin pretty much every hour I'm up, which is a fair bit while she sleeps. So I can really get an amazing insight into what actually changes blood sugar and insulin. So you, you have to make it work. You have to check the numbers with the reality that you see. And then I've had access to a whole lot of big data and been able to crunch the numbers on that to answer a bunch of the questions and cut through the dogma and belief and religion that is really a lot of nutritional movements. Well, it's interesting because I stumbled upon your work earlier this year and, you know, kind of dove down the rabbit hole, bought your book, went on vacation. You know, the first vacation my family's been (laughs) on in 15 months. And one morning my husband took the kids to breakfast and because I don't eat breakfast and we were in Charleston, South Carolina, where they have the most amazing biscuits in the world. And I still didn't eat them just because carbs like that don't do me any benefits at this stage in my life. And I just started, I really dove into your book and I kept thinking, I cannot wait to connect with you because there were so many little insights that, you know, as a nurse practitioner, it brought me back to 
the way that we used to instruct our patients about the, you know, really, I think of now as incredibly antiquated dogma. And I remember I had this Mm. one diabetic patient, my whole background as a nurse practitioner was in cardiology. And you can imagine I had lots of diabetic patients. Mm. And this one patient said to me one day, and this is a type two diabetic. So a little bit different than the type of diabetes your wife has. Mm. And I recall that I said, Oh, did you go see the diabetes educator? I said, yes. And I said, Mm. what did she tell you? And so he said, I have to count my carbs. I said, great. Tell me about how you counted your carbs. He said, well, I have six bananas a day. (laughs) I said, did you tell the diabetes educator that you had six bananas a day? And he said, yes. She told me to count my carbs. And I thought there's something really wrong with this. You know, if the diabetes educator is encouraging you to consume a lot of fruit Mm. and you're already a diabetic and you're on a lot of insulin, like exogenous insulin, oral, you know, oral medication. I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So I feel in many ways, it's really critically important as a healthcare provider to make sure that we're putting really good information out Mm. there to help our diabetic population and just people in general understand the way that our body processes different macronutrients. Yeah. Yeah. Different people are different. And for Monica, when she got off the blood sugar insulin roller coaster, Dr. Bernstein, who's been a massive influence and really a, a godsend that we found Bernstein and type one grit group talks about the law of small numbers. And if you're injecting a lot of insulin for a lot of carbohydrate, the errors are really massive and it's impossible to perfectly match that mm-hmm. for exogenous injected insulin. But I suppose, you know, I dove into the insulin load and tried to optimize better food choices for people with diabetes. But then the really high fat, low insulin approach doesn't work for everybody when they want to lose body fat that might drive higher ketones, but those ketones aren't actually coming from your body. And eventually it leads to higher insulin levels and rah, rah. So anyway, I've, I've tried to unravel the data to understand what works for specific people with specific goals. Well, and it makes me think a great deal about another engineer who's really turning the cholesterol movement and the mm. way that we think about cholesterol, you know, Dave Feldman, mm. I think about him a lot. You know, so when I was looking through your book, it really made mm. me think back to my discussions with him about cholesterol. Mm. And sometimes it takes an engineer to really give healthcare providers a different, like to look at the problem from a different mm. perspective and to do it in a way that's very methodical, organized, mm. data-driven, which mm. all healthcare providers love data. We absolutely <laughs> love data. But before we kind of dive into your methodology, I really wanted to talk about like how has nutritional dogma contributed to a lot of the metabolic diseases that we're seeing? And it's not just yeah. the United States, but you know, westernized countries in general. What do you think is contributing to that? I obviously have strong opinions. But I'm curious to get your take on it as well. It it sounds like from what I understand that Australia perhaps is not, probably is not as bad as the United States, or maybe our rates of obesity and metabolic disease are more substantial, but it sounds as if most of the westernized countries that are out there are struggling with these same issues. Mm. And what do you think has really contributed to it? We're basically following your lead in America. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I suppose the understanding of nutrition, I talk in the book about deities and diets and we, you know, in years gone past, we understood the world, you know, that God made it rain and we, you know, did a rain dance and we ascribed different things to religious beliefs until we could understand them and explain them with data and science and slowly our science gets better, but we're still 
evolving and there's a heck of a lot we don't understand about nutrition still. I think a lot of nutrition has evolved somewhat out of a religious background. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, so like Ted Naiman, interesting journey coming from um, that. And when I was uh, you know, in primary school, parents left the church and went to more of a, you know omnivorous diet and, and then come 30 or so came to paleo and low carb and, and definitely a, a high protein, higher protein advocate now. I think a lot of it comes from a religious belief system combined with a economic a food system that's based around a plant-based approach that really combines cheap seed oils, cheap grains, refined processed grains and cheap sugars that make really high profit margin foods. And, and over the last 100 years, we've worked out how to extract seed oils from different types of beans that are incredibly cheap and the amount of oil in a diet has gone up by 600 calories per person per day over the last 100 years which is phenomenal and then over the last 50 years we've gone with the got big get big or get out sort of agricultural approach and everything's just mass crop produced everything's produced in the same field over and over and over again and um so that combination of carbs and fat together with low uh, protein which is more expensive is just this concoction that we can't stop eating so whether it's by design or just economic amenity it's cheap it's cost effective to sell these products that you can then put with flavors and colors to make them look like they taste you know they make them look better than any natural product we're just you know it's a time bomb that we we need to reverse engineer to get out of in the in as soon as possible so yeah i agree and it's interesting because my mother was kind of a first generation. I had this Italian mom. I grew up in the seventies. I didn't realize my mom was crunchy before crunchy was crunchy. And, you know, she had us eating organ meats and we ate mm. you know, home. You know, my mom would bake bread and my mother made all of our meals from scratch and we very rarely ate out. And so my brother and I have a profound appreciation for home cooked meals and really, you know, subscribing to a methodology where we enjoy, you know, making mm. meals at home. Mm. But I agree with you that we've had this profound shift for hyper palatable foods. You know, the mm. processed food industry has really accelerated and it makes their food, you know, I, it's, there's a really interesting book called salt, sugar, fat mm. that talks about the bliss point and talks mm. about how these food scientists make mm. these foods as tantalizing as possible yep. so that we, yep. you know, we get all these dopamine hits in our brains yep. and yep. we struggle to be able to limit, you know, they always say you just can't have one Dorito yeah, or you just yeah, can't yeah, have yeah, one yeah. Cheeto. And there's yeah. a reason for that. And yeah. it's not people not or lacking the ability to, you know, constrain themselves. There's actual biochemistry. It's in their not brain, your fault. Exactly. It's the fat and carbs together both give a additive, you know, non-natural dopamine hit that we get mm -hmm. from both of those energy sources together. And in nature, those foods were very, very rare other than like in autumn when winter was coming and we had to get fat. So those foods just send a signal to our, to our body that winter is coming, we need to fatten up, we need to keep eating. But then we never get to winter, we never get to that low-carb sort of, you know, keto low-carb phase. And then, you know, a lot of us get around to low-carb but never move out into spring, which is like a, a higher protein percentage to really lean out and get optimal and, and nothing cycles. We just get stuck in that autumnal fat plus carb danger zone just perpetually. And, and no wonder we all can't stop eating. Yeah, exactly. I think when I was 
doing some research before we connected that your conversation with Ted Naiman, who I've interviewed mm. and I love, I think he's fantastic. Yeah. He's you mentioned mind. that when you get this fat carb mismatch, mm. you'll consume 30 to 40% more mm. calories. Mm. And also, as you mentioned, the dopamine hit and it, how mm. super addictive mm. those together are you know, combined with the seed oils, which mm. for anyone that follows me, they know that that's like the a number one thing that everyone needs to be aware of. Yeah. I think it was Ben Bickman who recently said that the most consumed fat in the United States right mm. now is soybean oil. And I thought to myself, yeah. that's really sad because it's yeah. just proliferative. Yeah. And it's just really, really cheap. And you mm -hmm. can see why the food producers have done it. And you can see why that the education, the research and the diabetes educators, the, the nutritional educators guide us to eat those foods because they're all sort of interrelated and whether it's mm -hmm. by, you know, bias or belief or financial interests, they're, they're all sort of leading us to eat these hyperpalatable foods that are really high profit margins. So that's what, <laughs> you know, if you want to get, you know, conspiracy theorists, that's what they want you to eat because it makes people a lot of profit a lot of money and they want you to believe that protein is bad and saturated fat's bad and you because you know what's the option if you, if you avoid protein if you avoid saturated fat you end up with this plant-based concoction i'm all for plants i'm all for for veggies and you know nutrient density and some of the foods that contain carbohydrates and green non-starchy veggies contain the nutrients that are harder to find in a meat-based diet but the, the version of plant-based is just as long as you're not eating animals and that that's just the refined garbage that's mm -hmm. hyper profitable and we get stuck in autumn and keep eating i know and so let's talk a little bit about what energy toxicity really represents and so you're yeah. alluding to it you're talking about being stuck in autumn yeah. and in this you know energy toxicity state so for the value of the listeners, let's kind yeah. of unpack what that represents, because I know that you use that term quite a bit. And mm. I think it's a really great way yeah. to talk about when you're consuming like your macros, you know, the, the food that you're consuming is really more than what your body can actually mm. use. Yeah. The concept of energy toxicity and personal fat threshold and oxidative priority are sort of all interrelated in my mind. It have been really revelationary to understand how nutrition works. And Ted talks a lot about oxidative priority and energy toxicity. And, and we all get stuck talking about insulin toxicity, but the reason when you look at insulin in a type one diabetic, for, for my wife, Monica, 90% of her dose each day, you'd know from working with diabetics is a basal dose just to hold her body together. And it's only 10%, a little fluctuation that goes up and down that is in response to the food she eats. So trying to consider your insulin each day in terms of the little blips you get from the food you eat is like trying to measure the volume of the ocean by measuring the height of the waves on the top. It's like crazy. You need to look at the reason why you've got so much insulin. It's to hold your body from disintegrating. And to manage that, you need to manage the energy toxicity, which is the upstream issue to the insulin toxicity. And that's all about creating a diet that reverse engineers that hyperpalatable situation to maximize satiety through increasing the nutrients per calorie of the food you're eating, which is all about, you know, higher protein percentage, higher nutrient density per calorie. So it ends up eliminating automatically all those hyperpalatable junk foods, the, the carbs, the refined oils, and you get a, a nutrient dense diet that makes you feel good and you're satisfied with eating less. 
I think that's really key for anyone that's listening. You know, when I love that you talk about bioindividuality, I love that you're talking about nutrient density. As you can well imagine, most traditional allopathic trained healthcare providers in the US, and I'm sure it's no different in Australia, we get little to no nutrition training. And what mm. we are trained with in the United States is off of my plate or the mm. food guide pyramid, which is crap and junk. And so <laughs> from my perspective, I, you know, six years ago, went back and did a functional nutrition program and it just completely lit me up. And mm. terms like bioindividuality, nutrient yeah. dense, I'd never heard those terms yeah. before. And so hearing you kind of echo those same sentiments, I'm like, oh, we're going to get along just (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about what is the carb insulin index. And for the benefit of people that are listening that maybe are not as familiar as with your work, what I love is that you take very salient pieces of information and explain them very, very clearly as most (laughs) engineers do or should. And so I think that this is a really important concept for people to really understand so that they can then follow through with the rest of our discussion. Yeah, I just try to dumb it down to the point that I can understand it and explain it and quantify it ideally and then use that to make better food choices with multi-criteria analyses. So one part of the multi-criteria analysis for the nutritional optimization system that we use is the food insulin index and there was a 1997 study done in the university of sydney that looked at the the short-term two-hour insulin response to food so they they fed a thousand kilojoules which is basically a snack size portion of a whole range of foods to different healthy students and looked at the insulin and blood sugar response after they ate and then they ranked it basically from glucose and jelly beans at the extreme end down to butter at, at the other end and and that gives us a way of quantifying the insulin response to food and you get to a point where you can say well for my wife monica a lower carb higher fat dietary approach makes a whole lot of sense because then you go back to the law of small numbers you eliminate those fluctuations and once her blood sugar is stable she's not making these massive errors in injecting exogenous insulin and on that roller coaster that she then has to eat herself out of and i suppose that's a critical thing that i've learned that once you go low whether you're diabetic or not you need to eat again so if you go too low if you let it go too long you need to eat again in a hurry and you you make worse food choices when your blood sugars get really low so if you're on the roller coaster and your blood sugars crash you make really poor food choices so that's a really key element of that but i suppose um what the food insulin index doesn't do, it doesn't describe the full basal insulin or the long-term response to different foods. So it only looked at the two-hour response. It didn't look really to quantify the amount of insulin required to respond to protein, which acts over a longer time, or fat, which acts over a much longer time because really your body just says, you know, we need to get rid of the carbs really quickly. So we'll hold back all the energy and storage all of a sudden until we clear the carbohydrate. And really carbs can actually be more satiating potentially than fat, interestingly, in the studies. But with fat, the body just says, you know, I don't need to release insulin to hold back energy and storage because we've got heaps of storage capacity for that. So just let it come in. We need that fat energy for later. If you're eating it, let's store it. So I suppose that's the subtlety that five years ago, I was much more of a you know, high fat keto zealot that um, I believed that I could turn off my own pancreas by eating MC2 oil and butter and I did that for a couple of years then I looked in the mirror and well, something's not quite working here I'll have to keep digging into the data to understand why that's the case so that's sort of you know trying to differentiate between 
the diet that works well for my wife and the diet that works well for me, who's got a functioning pancreas and is probably more prone to obesity. And uh, I have to have different dietary choices to try and manage my diabetes risk and my family history of, of diabetes. So, And um, a lot of people are in that boat as well. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Two important points. And I think one of the, the big errors I see make people make if they're eating lower carb or ketogenic and they unknowingly, you always want to burn your endogenous. So the Mm. fat stores you have in your body, preferentially we want to burn those first. Mm. And unfortunately with a lot of people, if they're new to low carb or or ketogenic diets, Mm. they overdo it on their fat Mm. consumption. And so I always explain that fat is the most kind of calorically dense of Mm. macronutrients. And so people have to be careful. I'm like, you can't have all the avocado and all the butter and all the nuts because as delicious as they all are, when it's nine calories per gram versus four for protein and carbs, that kind of adds up. And so Mm. oftentimes I see patients and clients that unknowingly don't realize you can't have like a pound of bacon and five avocados and, Mm. you know, a package of nuts every day and wonder why you're you're not losing weight. And so I think it's really important because I think it's this misnomer that what we're really talking about is, you know, we want this super high fat diet and that's going to fix everything for everyone. And Mm. what I've come to find, at least in my, you know, clinical experience that more often than not, it's all about bio-individuality. You mentioned, Mm. you know, you were higher fat, kind of moderate protein, lower carb for a while. And you Mm. realized that that per se was not necessarily Mm. working well for you. So Mm. when you're talking to your clients about blood sugar and talking about monitoring blood sugar, I know that you're a proponent of glucometers. So being able to check your blood sugar and what's interesting, and I really want listeners to appreciate this is that even with all of my functional training, we always thought about blood sugars after we ate like, Oh, okay. We want to check it an hour, two hours. And we want it back at baseline. And one of the things that blew my mind was, you know, a lot of what you recommend, and I think this is brilliant, by the way, is that you want patients and clients to check their blood sugar when they start getting hungry to see where it is, to see if they've hit that trigger point. And so was it through your own journey or was it with Monica that you started kind of putting these pieces together, that that was far more valuable information than being solely focused on postprandial values? Yeah, postprandial values after you eat are really useful because you don't want your blood sugar to go up really high and crash. Mm-hmm. But you, I see a lot of people trying to get flatline blood sugars and everybody in keto, low carb space, you know, yeah, they want flatline blood sugars. And to do that, they have to avoid protein and avoid all carbohydrates, of course. And then just, you know, unlimited fat is fine if it keeps your blood sugars flatline. But as I said before, you're just storing all the body fat. And even if you've got flatline blood sugars because you're just drinking butter all day, you're going to be gaining fat, you're not losing fat at that point. And like the butter bulletproof coffees and whatever can be useful as sort of a crutch as you transition from a fat plus carb diet to a lower carb diet and you go, I'm getting all this tidy, but it's probably from the increased protein you're eating. And then once you, you know, stall out with that approach, you need to start to dial back the dietary fat. If you want to lose body fat and, you know, ketones can look after themselves and chasing high ketones is a bit of a, mission fraught with danger because you don't know what the ketone value actually means whether it's coming from your body or the bulletproof coffee you just ate so five years ago came across a study that where university of otago in new zealand had done this really interesting work into hunger training and put out a post sort of describing how you could do it to look at your average pre-meal blood sugar from the last seven days and um 
sort of use that as a gauge for your hunger. And I thought, oh, I should come back to this. And I kept getting messages from people that found it and used it. And then about a year ago when we were in lockdown and, you know, I'd done a lot of heavy lifting and bulked up a bit more than I wanted to, I thought I'll try this. I put together a spreadsheet and play with it myself to, I'm sick of tracking calories, although, you know, sometimes you use chronometer to dial in nutrient mm-hmm. density. I just thought, well, I'll, I'll try this and put together the spreadsheet and it worked really, really well. And I talked with my nutrient optimizer partner, Alex, about building this out into a concept, data-driven fasting. We bought the domain like three or four years ago. And yeah, and it just worked really well. Put out a spreadsheet to a little Facebook group and a lot of people tried it and had really great success. And just uh, the idea is that when you get hungry, you check your blood sugars to see if you need to refuel at that point. Because really blood sugar is the first energy source that needs to be burnt off after a bit before you know, excess protein, dietary fat and your body fat. So you have to deplete glucose before those other fuels can be burned so it just made a whole lot of sense to use that to validate your hunger to see if you're really hungry because most of us have got massively dysregulated hunger signals and yeah so just worked really well and just seeing my wife's blood sugar all the time you just see how it works and have a really good appreciation for when she feels hungry based on her blood sugars and that's just given me a lot of insights that have been able to answer a lot of questions for people this is really, really mind blowing information. Like I can tell you when I read it, I told my husband, I was like, okay, check blood sugar when you're hungry to see what it is. If your blood sugar is 110, you don't need to eat. (laughs) You can go, maybe go take a walk or, you know, continue working. And then the other really kind of important piece, and I want to definitely ask you about glucometers versus Mm. CGMs or continuous glucose monitors. So your methodology is if your blood sugar rises more than 30, that is a sign that you've had too many carbs. So you would avoid, is it the quantity of carbohydrates in that same meal, or would you just avoid that meal entirely? Either really, you probably need to avoid that meal or eat less of that meal and people just gamify it and keep it within the range. And if your blood sugar rises more than 30 milligrams per deciliter over your trigger after you eat, it's a sign that you overfilled your fuel tank and you've got too many carbs on board and you don't need any more. It's like, okay, that makes sense. And if you see it in a fuel tank, you've got different separated fuel tanks. You've got alcohol that can't be stored. You've got ketones that similarly can't really be stored other than in your blood in a very small amount. Then you've got glucose, maybe two, two and a half thousand calories worth in your liver and your muscles. Then you've got the, the fat in your blood, which is about 200 calories or something minuscule and then mm-hmm. the fat on your body, which is 50 to 200,000 calories worth. So you really just have to manage those upstream fuels so that the downstream body fat can be released from storage. Do you have a preference on glucometers versus CGMs? And the reason why I'm asking is I have been wearing CGMs intermittently since last November, and it's been absolutely amazing. I've been low carb for a long time. I carb cycle. I kick myself out of ketosis. I do longer and shorter fasts. There's a lot of variety. And I believe in the value of everyone, even if you're metabolically flexible, being aware of how your body reacts to certain foods. And so it's been a very humbling journey over the last five months. And so, you know, things that I enjoy because I'm gluten grains and dairy free Mm. things that I enjoyed on my higher carb days, like plantains don't like me. I've come to find out they really spike my blood sugar to the point where I told my husband, this can't be right. (laughs) So I would go from, you know, really well-controlled blood sugar to like 160. I'm like, Whoa, where did that come from? And so it's been very enlightening, but 
you know, I'm sure for people that are listening that say, okay, a CGM, I don't qualify based on my insurance and I don't have the disposable income to pay for one, but I can purchase a glucometer. Yeah. But I'm sure that you probably have tracked data on both. What do you see are like the the benefits and the cons of both and beyond just the financial kind of outlay? Do you yeah, feel like definitely you get- the financial is a massive component mm-hmm. and to, you need the Dexcom is the gold standard that you really need to do it properly. And the freestyle is not as accurate. When you change sensors, you can't calibrate and stuff's at the data-driven fasting system. But for my wife, Monica, with type 1 diabetes, it's a godsend. It's incredible. We've got a, a closed-loop insulin system and it... You should see it just tweaks her insulin dose basal every five minutes to keep her in this perfectly flat line blood sugar. And it's incredible and changed her life. But to manage that and to understand that has been one of the most complex things I've ever had to do and trying to understand what all the blips mean. But you see most people, I'm an engineer that loves data and I've tried to be a biohacker and I'm a wannabe biohacker, but I've realized after five years of following Dave Asprey and everybody else that you know, life, you can only manage so many constraints, your lizard brain, your your survival reptilian instinct, if you push it from 50 different angles all at once, it'll just rebel and take over and just um, blow up your brain and just go stuff this, I'm going to throw this out. And before long, if you try to control it with too many variables all at once, you'll, you'll fail. And yeah, simplicity is best. You just need to manage the one thing that is most powerful to help you get the result you want. So you need the minimum effective dose of tracking and data to actually get the result you want. And that's sustainable. And most people need to do this for months, even years to get the result they want over the long term. So you don't want to be doing something A, you can't afford and B, that just does your brain in with all that data. You've probably seen, you go, I sneezed, I had a coffee, I, I went for a walk, I, you know, I felt a bit stressed and my blood sugar went up by three points. What does that mean? I'm going to get fat because I had a bit too much stevia, you know, all those things just blow people's brains. Mm -hmm. And we just see the best results from people who just use their blood sugar to calibrate and validate their hunger when they feel hungry. So if your blood sugar goes up and comes back down really quickly, that's probably okay as long as you don't feel a sugar crash and need to eat again. So that's why you sort of keep it in a, a fairly stable go up no more than ideally 30 milligrams per deciliter and come back down again. Um, but just watching it all the time tends to drive people to, I want to flatline it, so I'm going to avoid that pumpkin or or spinach or, you know, the the otherwise healthy food that they would have eaten, the whole healthy food, and they end up going for a low-carb, very high-fat diet that will keep the blood sugar flatline, and that's not what you want to focus on. You want to focus on using the blood sugar just to validate your hunger before you eat again two, three times a day and that's all you need to do and you get on with the rest of your life and it's incredibly cheap compared to all the other options out. It's like 5 or 10% of all the other, you know, Zowie and Day2 and Verta and everybody else and it's just really cost-effective and a lot of people are already getting it for free as part of their Medicare or healthcare or diabetes service. So, um, yeah, it's a whole lot more cost-effective and then eventually you can throw it away because you don't need it because you've retrained your hunger. And that's the mm-hmm. critical thing. You need to recalibrate your hunger. And a lot of people have gone, yeah, I did it for a, a month and I learned to understand my hunger and I didn't need the glucometer anymore. And that's exactly where we want you to get to that you've recalibrated your hunger rather than outsourcing your satiety to a My Fitness Pal or 
always watching your glucometer, your CGM. You just the goal is to recalibrate your hunger before you eat to understand if you really eat, need to eat or you can wait a little bit longer. I love your pragmatism and I think it's really important. I have one client in particular who I advocated that we get a CGM. We did get valuable information for a month and then she came to me and said I'm getting obsessive. It's driving me crazy. Like I get stressed and my blood sugar goes up. I take a shower, I play tennis and then my blood sugar goes up and it's stressing me out. And so I said, well, let's stop or let's, you know, do a timeout because Mm. people much to your point, the biohacking devices can be very beneficial, but when it becomes obsessive, then it's kind Mm. of bordering on this precipice of it's detracting away from the good, that good Mm. information or the good value from getting it. But when we talk about, hunger and satiety. And so I would Mm. imagine that quite a few people that, that come into your program probably have not only insulin resistant, but leptin resistance. And so are you doing any tracking of how long those people take to actually get to a point where they've reset because leptin is such a funny hormone. Mm. And I say funny, not as in ha ha funny, but kind of a quirky hormone. So when we're talking about like leptin and ghrelin and, you know, that hunger satiety kind of piece and how that all gets, you know, all these hormones really get dysregulated. I'm not talking about the average metabolically flexible individual. I'm talking about those that are insulin resistant Mm. and Mm. those that have diabetes. Do you have a sense of how long it actually takes to kind of reset Mm. that whole hunger hormone? Uh, there's a whole bunch of studies that see that people can reset their true hunger, especially once they get to a lower blood sugar. If you've got your blood sugars really all over the place at a really high level, those people have got really dysregulated hunger signals. But once they actually get their trigger down to a lower level, they can experience real hunger and they really feel those symptoms of, of hunger. They might feel a little bit cold, a foggy headed, they can't think straight, grumbly tummy, those sorts of symptoms. And they go, okay, I, this is a hunger signal. I need to eat again. I don't need to push through this. I don't need to fast. And I suppose a lot of people come from a, a fasting background where they've learned to push through the hunger for mm-hmm. days and then they eat indiscriminately afterwards and don't make long-term progress. But I don't know, I suppose I'm a little bit cynical about the leptin and ghrelin and all those other things that, you know, CYK and all the other peptides that we talk about that are obviously related to hunger and satiety, but we can't measure and we can't really understand. And I suppose I've been burnt by trying to, the carb insulin hypothesis that we've had all these pronouncements and biblical truths of, you know, you know, if you have a carbohydrate, you'll get fat because the insulin went up. And so that there's a real misunderstanding when we try to, you know, interpret things that we don't really fully understand. So it's just a simple matter of using your blood sugar as a fuel gauge. And that just tends to recalibrate it. And the important factor is, you know, what you eat when you eat. If you go too long, you don't eat well, you don't make good food choices. So you go just long enough that you can still make really good food choices and you feel satiated and then you can eat again sooner. And all these people are coming from extended fasting from two or three days and going, I can eat two or three times a day now. This is incredible. And I'm losing weight. And I'm, you know, all these people who have had professional guidance from the gurus to fast for three weeks at a time who were stalled out and now giving nourishing their body and their body goes, well, I don't need this fat anymore because there's no famine Mm. and they make progress. So honestly, I don't know about the leptin and ghrelin because we can't quantify it. We can quantify the blood sugars all the time and um, we can dial in what you eat when you eat. And that's 
as complex as it needs to be. I'm a dumb engineer and I need the numbers to work for me to understand it. So, yeah. Um, no, I think yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. I'll just keep saying that, you know, it makes so much sense. And so obviously I'm completely humbled that we're connecting because this is <laughs> certainly going to change how I interact with my own patients and clients yeah, cool. and things that I teach them, of course, giving full credit to you, you bringing this up. So let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance and how, you know, when someone's lean, they tend to be more insulin sensitive. When people are overweight or obese, they tend to be more insulin resistant or diabetic. And you talk about this personal fat threshold, mm. which you know, each one of us has our own personal fat threshold. That seems <laughs> to be a little tongue tied this evening. And so for a lot of my patients, when I'm talking to them, I'm like, I like to get a fasting insulin because this yep. is oftentimes the first biomarker that will mm. actually get dysregulated way before hemoglobin A1C, mm. oftentimes way mm. before fasting glucose. Mm. And, you know, I've even seen some people that have been very low, like in the twos, but when wow. we're kind of looking at insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, let's talk a little bit about this personal fat threshold and how that's yeah. in influenced by what we're talking about. Yeah, a really powerful concept. I suppose just circling back to the type 1 diabetes analogy that if my wife stopped taking insulin, all her stored energy would disintegrate into a bloodstream. She'd see high glucose, ketones, free fatty acids floating around in the bloodstream. She'd be peeing them out and she was losing incredible amounts of weight when she was diagnosed and before long they just waste away and die without injected insulin which is really scary but if you've got a functioning pancreas then that's not the case but it's what's happening is for the food you're eating your insulin keeps rising and as your body fat keeps growing your pancreas needs to keep pumping out more and more insulin and once you're your adipose tissue your bum your belly your cheeks your face all those sort of places where you've got that unsightly fat that we all want to get rid of. That That's actually the easy accessible storage depot for your fat that it's meant to be stored there for easy access. But there's like a sponge, it can only hold so much energy. And once that fills up, it starts to overflow and back up into your bloodstream as you increased free fatty acids, the glucose, the ketones, and then it goes into your vital organs and gets stored in, in places where it really shouldn't be stored. And to do that, your pancreas has to keep on choosing more and more and more insulin while you keep you know, eating those autumnal foods that you can't stop eating. So it, you know, as you keep filling up all your fuel tanks, your body goes, okay, my winter must be coming, must be a big one, let's, um, let's keep storing and you exceed your personal fat threshold, which is the amount your body can comfortably store before you, you know, overfill those those easily accessible storage depots. So um, we talk a lot about insulin resistance and insulin toxicity, but again, it's it's the energy toxicity that we need to be focusing on and managing that through a high satiety, nutrient dense diet that will enable you to. You know, we've all tried counting calories, but you can, only, you can only restrict what you eat intentionally for so long without changing what you eat. You can't just say, I'm going to, you know, I'm eating 5,000 calories of donuts. I'm going to cut that down to 2,000 calories of donuts and pizza a day and I'll lose weight. But eventually your body just goes, okay, if you're just going to feed me that, I need to get back to that 5,000 calories. But if you can create a high satiety, nutrient-dense diet, your body goes, okay, you're giving me the nutrients I need to thrive, I can get rid of this stored energy and I don't need to chew through so many calories worth of crappy food to get the nutrients I need to actually fuel my mitochondria to produce energy. 
Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Really interesting. And, and so in your kind of clinical experience, you know, we talk about nutrient density and then we also talk about nutrient deficiencies. And mm. so what are some of the more common deficiencies that you see with, and I'm going to just throw out some of the bigger, you know, nutritional dogmas like keto or carnivore or vegetarianism. What are some of the more, and I of course can probably guess some of the big ones, but for the benefit of the listeners, what are some of the more common kind of nutrient deficiencies? And what I found really fascinating when I was reading your book is that those nutrient deficiencies can then drive some of the cravings and the lack of satiety. So it's this fascinating, like they all fit together like a puzzle. Yeah, I suppose in terms of nutrient deficiencies, some people do get diagnosed with 
frank clinical nutrient deficiencies where you'll test on a test that you've got a nutrient deficiency because you're eating you know, unfortified rice or you no meat at all or, or whatever. And that does happen, but usually your body compensates and, and recycles those nutrients and works really hard and works overtime. And I suppose that's the point. If you're not giving it a lot, it has to work a lot harder to maintain healthy potassium and magnesium, all those sort of, of nutrients. So you probably won't see frank deficiencies, but in a, in a plant-based diet, you're struggling to get B12 and omega-3 and a carnivore diet, you might be struggling to get potassium, maybe magnesium and, and a number of other nutrients that are harder to get. On a keto diet, yeah, similar sort of thing with, with the nutrients that come with the green non-starchy veggies, the plants, the, the magnesium, the, the potassium and all the minerals are often harder to get. But it depends on the person's individual diet. But a lot of the time with a keto approach, it's just a low satiety, nutrient-poor diet that leads to overeating. Which makes a lot of sense. And and what's really interesting, and, and I know it's something that you talk about quite a bit and I do as well, that you know, protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And I think yep. people are surprised if they're not eating a protein focused diet. They're surprised mm. because we have a very carbohydrate focused diet mm. overall. Like when you look at the food guide pyramid and my plate, which I call my junk, yeah. when you see a lot of what's propagated, you know, in westernized countries, it's a very unsatiating diet, which is why mm. we can't stop eating the bread and can't stop eating the pasta yeah. and can't stop eating the rice. Whereas if yeah. we have a piece of steak or we have a piece of fish yeah. or something along those lines, and then add in the rest of the macros, it's a mm. much more well-rounded. And has that mm. been your experience that when people start switching up and I know yeah. that Ted talks about this quite a bit as well, that, you know, you kind of ramp up the satiety piece and then people like the cravings, they don't feel like continuing mm. to eat because they yeah. feel full. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the MyPlate and the Dietary Guidelines are developed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture yes. and their mission statement is to promote the products of U.S. agriculture and, and that's infiltrated across the world. So it's no wonder the dietary recommendations, you know, guide you to products of agriculture and, you know, the most cost-effective, profitable, high-profit margin cheapest you know the cheapest foods available if you look in the shopping center are the the vegetable oils and the sugars you know they're just dirt cheap per calorie it's incredible but yeah amino acids and love ted to death the amino acids are the most satiating micronutrient and that's protein but ted loves to make things as simple as possible and that's why he's just exploded because people go okay this is the most powerful lever that works for me if you wanted to sort of put the icing on top of that picture all the micronutrients have a similar sort of satiety response. So if you eat foods that contain more potassium per calorie, you'll be more satiated. You get to a certain point with sodium at about five grams per 2,000 calories where your appetite set, settles down. And we see the same thing over and over again. We've tested 60,000 days worth of data from people using Nutrient Optimizer logging in chronometer to understand their satiety response to all these different micronutrients to identify not just the minimum to prevent diseases of deficiency, the recommended daily intake or the dietary re reference intake, but we've defined a optimal nutrient intake and that's sort of how we've created all the, the recipes and, uh, and food lists to try and guide people to get the nutrients that they need more of in their diet. And like you said, everybody's got a different current nutritional profile and if you really want to level it up you can say what nutrients do i need to get more of in my diet to round it out to get a balanced diet at a micronutrient level and then once you think in terms of that all the dietary dogma and you know 
beliefs and religion just explode and vanish and you see into the matrix of the numbers behind nutrition to and then the foods look beautiful and vibrant and healthy and you just look at the meals and you go yeah that looks like good food that actually contains the nutrients that you need well and i think it's really powerful when you have retrained your palate to crave mm nutrient-dense real whole food as opposed mm. to something that comes in a box, a, a bag or mm. a can. Mm. And so I would love for you to kind of touch on, I know, and I've looked through the recipes. I am really excited to try many of them, <laughs> but you have quite a collection yeah. of different recipe books that are focused in different key areas. And I would yeah. imagine pain points for a lot of people, you know, yeah. one is like fat loss and one is balancing blood yeah. sugar. Yeah. And has it been over the last several years that you've kind of started compiling all these things, you and your team? Yeah. Um, because it's really well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey. I'm really excited to be at this point where we're getting them out, issued a batch a year ago. And over the last year, we've developed them even further. But yeah, I realized, like I said before, that not everybody needs to lose weight. Not everybody needs to control their blood sugar. There's people who want to bulk up and they're bodybuilders or they're athletes. And if they go on a high protein energy ratio diet with a very low energy availability, they're going to lose weight and bonk and not get enough energy to perform those activities. And there's some people who, for religious reasons, follow a, a plant-based diet or a vegetarian diet. And we've tried to paint those diets in the best light possible and say you guys need nutrients too here's the most nutrient dense meals you can have and then we've gone into to cancer to look at if you're looking to lose if you need to lose weight if you're managing cancer these are the, the meals for you that have less folate methionine b12 glutamic acid that tend to be related to cancer growth and if you're sarcopenic after cancer treatment here are the you know the same set of nutritional priorities but with energy as well to actually regain weight so then we've got therapeutic keto for people who actually need elevated ketones for the management of epilepsy but the reality is most people think they want elevated ketones for weight loss but they're eating a really high fat diet which actually is what you need to gain weight so um yeah we've developed an array of 26 different books autoimmune protocol low fodmap low oxalate for people who went oh i can't eat spinach because i'll die <laughs> and it's got oxalate in it I and mean, some people do have real issues with oxalate but it's not a lot of people yeah so we've developed the whole array and then they're all embedded in nutrient optimizer so if you log your food it'll actually rank them all based on your current needs of what you ate in the last few days and is your app actually the chronometer we use chronometer for the food logging nutrient optimizer sort of sucks all the data in and then says these are the foods you need these are the meals you need these are the macros you need going for the coming week and we have a master class that guides people through that process over six weeks so that's a whole lot of fun yeah but chronometer is amazing for tracking micronutrients in food and that's really really powerful data that um just peeks behind the curtain of nutrition and as i said blows all the dogma away well because i think there's so much focus on protein, fat, and carbs. And then, you know, alcohol is seen as the big, bad toxin that, you know, people sometimes <laughs> yeah. ingest. And I think for so many of us, we don't even think about micronutrients. We mm. just think, you know, I'm going to eat my food and I'll worry about that later. Now, one of the things I invited people to do was to ask questions knowing oh, yeah. that we are going to connect. And so I took five that were asked more than once. <laughs> so one of the questions that I received was how do you navigate eating out? This is from Helene. 
you can choose well when you eat out. You choose the best thing you can. But I suppose if you're 80, 90% of the time you're eating good food that you prepare at home, you know where it came from, you can enjoy that and then get back on the wagon. And I suppose with blood sugars, you can see exactly the damage it did Um, to your blood sugars. You can see how you filled your fuel tank. And when your fuel tanks are full, you know that they only need protein and nutrients at that point. You don't need fuel. And that just helps you guide it back down without feeling guilty and having to fast for days on end and do hours of cardio. And then you find yourself in another binge restrict cycle, which is so endemic, I think, in fasting. And that's what we've tried to help people manage to find that optimum balance to get a a progressive overload without, you know, going to the gym and lifting 200 kilos the first time and they're going to break. They're going to, you know, they can't do that too often. They need to just do a little bit and then do a little bit more and do a little bit more and adapt and eventually they reach their goal. Give yourself grace, no self-flagellation. I think that's really important for everyone (laughs) that's listening that, you know, you don't overeat. And this is a perfect segue into the next question. You don't overeat and then beat yourself up for like a week. Mm, That's mm. not productive. Loretta asked, you talk quite a bit about Lizzie. And so (laughs) for the benefit of listeners aren't familiar with Lizzie, this is the amygdala. So this is the kind of reptile brain that when it overrides our prefrontal cortex, we Mm. oftentimes don't really make good food choices. Mm. And so when we're in that kind of scarcity mindset, the emotional eating piece, what are your best recommendations for that? Yeah, I think it's really powerful to make peace with your inner lizard and give it what it needs and (laughs) then it settles down. If you push Lizzie too far, which is your amygdala, however you want to see the brain, the trillion brain, or however you want to picture it, there is a part of your instinct that you need to respect and feed it and give it what it needs and then it settles down and you're not consumed by food all the time. What was the second part of the question there? No, asking, you know, so in my clinical experience, when I see Lizzie or the pig, however people like to (laughs) call it, I'm thinking of Glenn Livingston's pig analogy, Mm. the inner pig. It's like your inner Mm. brain pig. You know, sometimes people fast for too long and then, Mm. you know, it's this scarcity mindset. And so Mm. their amygdala overrides their prefrontal cortex and then they eat all the things. And then Mm. this whole guilt cycle starts all over again. So that's, sorry, my dogs, my dogs are now talking in the context of emotional eating. What are your best recommendations for people to address that behavior? Sorry. I suppose the secret there is not to fast for so long that you trigger that instinct. And when you do it, you actually give Lizzie what he or she needs at that point. And if you do that, you won't fall into that binge restrict cycle. You just find a peace between your your prefrontal cortex and your, your amygdala because you're actually nourishing it. You're not continually in a battle. And, and we, like I said before, we outsource it to my fitness pal and that never works. In a New Zealand study, they found that the people tracking with, with my fitness pal did even worse than people who were just weighing themselves every day. And the people who did best were the ones testing their blood sugars to calibrate their actual hunger. Yeah, so if you're fasting so long that you find yourself like I used to in the peanut butter and the yogurt and everything I could get my hands on, I was trying to get my ketones higher, so I was eating the butter and the MCT oil after that, you've gone too long and you don't need to go that long and that's the binge response, that's the binge instinct that will kick in when you tell your body you're in a a famine and um, that's not a good place to be and your body's not going to want to release your fat stores because there's a famine. It's, you know, it's completely logical. And yeah, so all these people get to eat 
two, three times a day and go, I'm losing weight. What's up with this? It's crazy. What is this magic? Well, I think, I think, and it's not just women. I think men have the same mentality as well that, you know, we punish ourselves. It's like, I have to fast longer. I have to work out harder. I have to eat less food. And it's kind of retraining that mindset. And I kind of feel like once men and women cross over like late thirties and their early forties, we have to treat our bodies a little bit more kindly. And so Mm. I love that you kind of embrace that mentality of, don't fast as long, you know, maybe you need to liberalize what you're doing so that you Mm. aren't feeling so prone to binging. Mm. Katie asked, what are your thoughts about weight loss in those that are insulin sensitive? Yeah. When you're insulin sensitive, like a stage lean bodybuilder, they're incredibly insulin sensitive. So anything they eat will be stored as fat very quickly. Um, So you see them with the box of donuts after their show because they want to gain fat and they're just craving energy. But when you're insulin resistant, a lot of people think I'm I'm fat because I'm insulin resistant, but actually it's the people who gain the most weight who are actually still insulin sensitive. And once you tap out, once you reach your personal fat threshold, you can't keep on gaining weight. So if you're actually insulin sensitive, it just gets a little bit harder and your body is saying, okay, I'm, I'm happy at this weight and mm-hmm. maybe you need to make peace with your current weight or just continue to pursue nutrient-dense, high-satiety foods with less energy from carbs and fat when you eat to keep on gently taking the process down. You can drop weight very, very quickly if you're carrying a lot of it once you give your body the food it needs. But as you get leaner, it just slows down and you have to be happy with that process and look in the mirror and go, I'm an amazing person. And and we definitely encourage people to build strength, not just get skinny. And Mm -hmm. you want to, I got skinny, um, got down to 80 kilos and but I felt weak and cold and didn't like really how I looked and how I felt. And I'd much rather be strong and robust and and feel Mm -hmm. like I'm thriving at a healthy weight without being skinny is the goal. Yep. I always say healthy is sustainable. Unhealthy Mm. is not. Mm. And it can go on either end of the spectrum. Gabrielle asked, what are your thoughts on protein intake while on maintenance? So she, I believe she's at her healthy weight and she asked, you know, how do you tweak protein intake and maintenance? Yeah. Protein doesn't really change much whether you're trying to if you're trying to lose weight you probably need more protein to prevent loss of lean muscle mass but overall protein doesn't change too much and it's just the energy from carbs and fat that you dial up and down so once you hit maintenance you still need your 1.8 grams per kilo lean body mass and you dial back up the energy to prevent fat mass losing continually yeah so you always need protein you always need nutrients and you just dial up and down the fuel from fat and carbs to continue to maintain or lose or gain or whatever you need. Last question. Fred asked, I've read the studies and I know that I can maintain muscle while intermittent fasting, but what are your recommendations if I'm looking to gain more muscle than I currently have? Eat more protein and lift (laughs) heavy things and have enough sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Have enough fuel on board to grow if if you want to, and to fuel that activity. It's definitely hard to get enough protein if you're eating less than two meals a day. Two meals a day seems to be the minimum. It's possible with one meal a day. I know some people who can gain muscle with one meal a day, but you have to be incredibly intentional. And people who are far doing extended fasting and then eating keto to keep their insulin and blood sugars flatline are just completely underdoing protein and losing lean muscle mass. And and if you get, you know, skinny fat and 
skinnier over the long term, your body's going to rebel eventually and you'll, you'll, yeah, Lizzie's going to come out and riot completely at that point. So you'll, and then you'll feel like a failure, feel guilty and, you know, I just didn't have enough willpower, but, you know, your willpower is finite. You've got to give your body what it needs. You've got to nourish your body with the nutrients it needs when it needs it. I think that's a really critically important distinction to make. And for anyone that's listening, I sometimes wonder, you know, maybe there are some men out there that can get in 2000 plus calories and get all their macros in eating one meal a day. But I just find that OMAD or one meal a day is really challenging for people that want to maintain muscle. And especially at middle age, I know sarcopenia, which is this muscle loss Mm. with aging, which is a normal thing that happens unless you get Mm. enough protein and lift heavy things and get enough Mm. sleep, et cetera, that really accelerates after age 40. And so Mm. I remind people that you really want to be deliberate about your protein intake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that's killing people is just being sarcopenic in old age Mm -hmm. and they get frail. And at that point, your immune system stuffed and you can't get out of the chair and you can't contribute to society. If you're not actually feeling valuable in the world, then your body just starts to, they talk about the grandmother hypothesis that, you know, people who are contributing and making a difference Mm -hmm. and giving and serving that body says, I'm worthy, I'm I'm useful. I want to keep on living forever. But if you have no purpose because you're too weak to serve and give to the your family and loved ones and um, you know help your grandchildren, then your body just tends to waste away and um, and shut down, and that's a really scary place to be. So, for all those people who think they can avoid protein for fear of mTOR or whatever, it's like no, 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 no. Just you know, be strong, be robust, yeah. be vitally healthy, feel great, and whatever you have on your body that muscle mass at 40 it's your bank account to to have a long healthy vibrant life that you love living absolutely what an incredible analogy and one of the things that i used to say to my patients was when you can't when you don't have the quadricep strength to get up out of a chair off the toilet Mm. that's a sign that's like a danger sign because if you're the more sedentary you become the more muscle mass that accelerates you could become osteopenic Mm. and you see people i remember my grandmother saying and she volunteered up until the day she died Mm. remember her saying to me that your appetite changes as you get older you're Mm. just not as hungry and and she was saying i can't believe how many people my own age like literally do nothing other than sit all day long and she said i i can't do that so yes we always want to be of service to others Absolutely critical. Well, I am so grateful for your time. I know that you are starting your day. It is now Monday morning where you are. Can you share with the listeners how best to connect with you? How can they get your cookbooks and your program, which I'm thoroughly enjoying your in your books, which are fantastic. How can they connect with you? Yeah. Best place is to Google optimizing nutrition, which has got all the recipe books. There's also a Facebook page and a Facebook group you can join the data-driven fasting Facebook group. I've got about 6,000 people. It's just exploding and people are going, oh, this is really cool. I love it. Mm-hmm. And it's just really going off, really enjoying that. We've got a regular 30-day challenge that people can get into and it's sort of a guided program for all mm-hmm. those million questions that come up as people start to check their blood sugars. And even with the simple glucometer, does their head in a little bit. So we sort of try to guide them through that process with the data-driven fasting challenge. Yeah, and then Nutrient Optimizer is another program that we have that we dial in with the Nutritional Optimization Masterclass, which is a six-week program that we guide people through to dial in the macros and then the micros and all these people get obsessed with chasing 
the highest nutrient density score and solving the puzzle of nutrition and these people who lose themselves in this process just come out going, I feel great, I've lost all this weight and don't need all my supplements and I'm saving $500 a month from all the subs that I used to have. So, um, yeah, I'm just loving having fun doing this and making great friends. So come join the nutrition optimization movement. It's a wonderful movement. And I'm so very grateful that I stumbled upon your work and that I am able to bring your message to my listeners who I know will be connecting with you very soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.